Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Some people have told me that we don't talk about the Grateful Dead enough on this podcast. It wasn't me. That's for sure. <laughs> yes, I know. We've had a number of guests talking about the Grateful Dead, and we're happy to welcome another one. Bob Trudeau is a retired professor of political science, and that has nothing to do with the book that he has co-authored with Barry Barnes called The Grateful Dead's 100 Essential Songs, The Music Never Stops. Bob, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's a real honor, actually. I've listened to many of your episodes, especially the ones about the dead, obviously. Yep. And uh, I've really enjoyed them. Thanks. Well, there's more than 200 episodes, so this will keep you busy through the summer if you want to listen to everything. But as regular listeners know, not all episodes are about similar things. We talk about the Grateful Dead. We cover classical music a lot. We have a wide palette of, of interests. But as regular listeners know, the Grateful Dead is one of my main interests. Can I just also just say before we get into this, maybe some people wonder why I tolerate <laughs> the... Uh, the discussion of, of Kirk's particular favorite kinds of music, and it's because I can relate to it. I have particular kinds of favorite music, too. And while we don't share an enthusiasm for the same kinds of music all the time, we do share the same kind of enthusiasm for the music that we like. And that's what we both share and, and enjoy about it. And, and one of the things that I have been able to do is I've learned more about The Grateful Dead. I've... The Grateful Dead have always been around for me, but they've never, you know, they've never been like my top five bands or anything like that. They've just always been there. And so that's why we talk a lot about the Grateful Dead, because they are a prime example of the sort of uh, fandom and uh, legacy and history and cultural import that a lot of bands have. So just wanted to get that out after all these years. Deadheads often define themselves by the first dead concert they saw. Bob, what's yours? Uh, March 28th, 1973, Springfield, Massachusetts. Ooh, nice period. I like 73 dead. Mine was spring 77. Now, I'm a few years younger than you, but 73 dead, that was a prime period, wasn't it? It was, it was. Uh, the, the downside is that first show was just shortly after Pigpen died. And so I, I have never seen Pigpen in performance other than on some videos. But it was a great show. Yeah. And how many shows have you seen now? I don't know. <laughs> 30 or 40. 30 or 40? Okay. So that's just sort of average deadhead, not one of these people who followed them around on tour or who's seen hundreds of concerts. No, my co-author, Barry, saw 200 or so and kept meticulous records and so on and so on. And I've never been able to do that. So I, I don't have the ticket stubs. I have some, but I don't have enough. Uh, and I, d I don't really remember how many shows I went to. Well, of course you don't remember. <laughs> Isn't that the whole point? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I only saw about a half a dozen shows, and I only have stubs for a couple of them. I remember most of them, but not the exact dates. For instance, my first show at the Palladium in New York was either late April or early May, right at the beginning of that wonderful uh, Spring 77 tour. But I don't remember exactly which show it was. It's not that important. 
but knowing the the era when someone first saw the dead, that gives an idea because I think we imprint on the dead of that era. I, I think I, I know that people who've seen the dead in the eighties consider that well, dead from the early seventies, that's just old stuff. And I like the you know the stuff with the MIDI synthesized music and all right. that. Whereas those of us who are a bit older with more dead experience, we kind of frown. Many of us frown on the newer stuff, you know, from the nineties. Absolutely. I, I agree with you completely. The only thing I'd say a little bit differently is I, f the first dead that I heard, which was on record was the skull and roses from 1971. So I, that's really where I imprinted. Yep. Here's a copy skull and roses. I just got go. the new expanded edition on the weekend. That's funny too, because I also, uh, when I was in high school, a lot of the guys who liked to play music, had Skull and Roses, and as I've told Kirk a number of times, Skull and Roses is sort of a lingua franca among, uh, you know, musicians. Everybody knew, well, Johnny Be Good, right? You knew that. And then uh, there were a couple of other songs on there that, you know, we all had to learn in order to, you know, kind of jam together. So Skull and Roses is also an imprint for me, too. I really do love that, that record. Can I just make a mention of my new podcast? Sure. I've started a new podcast called Kirk's Picks, and the fifth episode that I released this morning is about Skull and Roses. So if you go to kirkville.com slash picks, you'll find all the episodes and information about subscribing. I talk about books and music and movies, et cetera, et cetera. So I've gotten that out of the way. What is your favorite show that you saw? Do you have a particular one that you really liked? I think the one that I really liked was at Dillon Stadium in Hartford, Connecticut, an outdoor show on July 31st, and I'm blanking on exactly the year, 74, I think. It's a, it's a... That would have been with the Wall of Sound, right? It was the Wall of Sound. It was, I think it's released as a Dick's Picks. Okay. Um, and hot, dusty day, dirt stadium, you know, not no seats or anything, just a, a melee of people. And, and, uh, went on for several hours. Uh, it was a great show. Yeah. I think my favorite, even though it wasn't entirely a great show, would have been one of the two Radio City Music Hall shows I saw in 1980, because they both opened with these acoustic sets, which mm. were just fantastic. Mm. I would say the electric sets in 1980 were less, you know, dead. Um, but I particularly was at the, the October 31, which was the one where Franken and Davis did the comedy routines. It was filmed for DVD broadcast right. on closed circuit TV. And yes, he, he the, a, a former U.S. senator was introducing the Grateful Dead back in 1980. That's right. That's right. There's a great scene with Al Franken in, the, in that documentary, Long Strange Trip, yeah. where the producer is discussing and this is something only deadheads can understand, I think, that discussing which version of, what was it? I'm blanking on the name of the sound. starts with A. is the best version ever. Uh, and they have a discussion. They start debating. No. And Al Franken says, no, such and such a date, Althea. 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 Such and such a date is, is the best one. And Bar Levy is saying, no, 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 it's such and such a date. And they go back and forth for a few times before he ends the interview. But you know, that's that's the way it is. So that sums up your book. You have 100 songs, and each entry of, about each song is about a page and a half or two pages, and that's what it is. It's the best versions. You give some background to the songs, but it's the best versions, when they were premiered, how many times they played live. And it's really the kind of thing that it's like two deadheads in a bar, right? We're discussing when, when you read this. If I may say, it's like one um, 
primo yes. deadhead and one segundo <laughs> deadhead because the, I, I don't consider myself a deadhead, although I'm a casual deadhead. That's what I call myself. And one of the things that I found about the book is that you can pick it up and put it down. You don't sit there and you get an education from it. You pick it up and you enjoy it at your leisure. And you, and because each each article on each song is um, is so dense and so packed with like nice little information, you can really learn a lot about the band just from one song. So it's as I as I hope you don't take this the wrong way. It's the perfect bathroom book. <laughs> because you go into the bathroom and you can read one chapter and walk away going, well, I've actually learned something today. I so, accept that accolade <laughs> and, and actually say that Barry and I intentionally aimed this at the Segundo deadhead. Yes. Yep. The, the real primo deadhead is not learning a, a lot that's new other than personal anecdotes about ourselves. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in fact, may even find mistakes. But uh, but the segundo deadhead, with any luck, will start appreciating the music a little more in depth, and really that's what it's about. I I'm sure I know some primo deadheads who'll go through this book and say, no no no, he's wrong here, he's wrong here, <laughs> because a lot of it is subjective. <laughs> that, that song is not essential. Yes, I don't care well, what they say. <laughs> it's not even essential. It's it's this version of the song isn't great because you know Jerry missed a beat here or because something went wrong, and you know because deadheads can be sort of like like they're you know looking at the Kabbalah and, and, and thinking about <laughs> numerology and stuff. And when you hear her deadheads talking, it's like, oh, it's like uh, 5877. Oh, it's like uh, 3269. You know, they talk in, in code. Um, and you can pick up some of that from this book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, partly, I guess, we're also trying to teach a little bit about the culture of deadheads. Yeah. yeah. That's true. That's a good point. Because the culture of deadheads is this, this sharing of this wealth of knowledge and this transmission of appreciation of certain things. When I start, when I first got the internet, it was about 1994. I was living in France, and it was the first time I could get internet on a local phone call. Previously, I could have dialed into Paris long distance at ridiculous rates per minute. One of the first things I did is look up tape traders because. Around that time, The Dead had released maybe two of the Vault series of live recordings and a couple of other ones, but they hadn't gotten into Dick's Picks yet. And I was like, oh, now I want to get back into The Dead. And I found tape traders, and I started developing this lore. It's like you learn about these you see these lists of the 10 best shows and you listen to them and then you see lists of like the 20 best and <laughs> you may not agree, but these are the ones to look for when you're trading. And in some ways your book is the same thing, but by song instead of by show. Right. It is. It is. And, and that's because really for the Segundo deadheads or the Tercero deadheads, <laughs> yes. you, I think you have to start with songs. Yep. And, and if I can add something on the side uh, Another hobby is teaching Grateful Dead 101 to senior citizens. And there, it's not even songs. That I have to start with lyrics. Yeah. Because they appreciate the content of the lyrics much more. And then you go from there to, you know, up, up a ladder. That's interesting. Quickly, depending on the circumstances. And pretty soon they're listening to, you know, China Cat Sunflower and I Know You're Writer and appreciating something that lasts 10 or 12 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought of it that way because Robert Hunter is an extraordinary lyricist. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's that's what's really unique in the world of rock and roll is having a lyricist like that over a long period of time. Yeah, 
Well, having two good lyricists and having a, a really fertile period of songwriting, which I would say like 69 to 77-ish, because after that it slowed down. But you've got that concentration with all the touring, all the songwriting, the musicians at the top of their game that just coalesced in, in those few years. And it's really, we've talked on the show before about how many bands will, the, the heart of their career is two or three albums. For the dead, it's longer than that because of the live performances. But it's true that unless you're, what do they call them, touch heads? People who first saw The Grateful Dead in the 90s after Touch of Grey was popular. Except for those people, you, you have to admit that there's, there's a core period when they were putting out most of their records, studio records, and when they were just, they had all this time to write and write and practice and play. That's right. Uh, and... You know they're really they're they're promoting themselves right now the uh, the uh, the uh, studio albums Working Man's Dead and American Beauty with 50th anniversary and all and now Skull and Roses but um, and it, a little that gets lost in that I think is is uh, is that Live Dead was you know probably the best capture of Live Grateful Dead from the from before 1971. Uh, and that was always they had they had already put that out. So they, they were kind of playing both sides of the aisle at that point, if I can put it that way. Um, yeah. Uh, 1969 to 1975 or six are, are really even 77. I think Terrapin Station is a brilliant album. That's true. Where did you get the idea for this book? What prompted it? Two deadheads in a bar with a couple of beers? <laughs> a couple of deadheads meet in a bar. Yeah. Uh, there's an internal answer to that and an external answer. The internal answer is that for a long time, I've thought about lyrics and what these songs could mean to people at, at a level deeper than just the playing of it in a concert, which was enjoyable for itself, but then it was gone. Uh, so that's been kind of rummaging around in my mind for a long, had been for a long, long time. The external is I was at... Uh, an annual meeting of the Grateful Dead Scholars Caucus in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And there was a book exhibit. This is a professional conference of the Southwest Texas Popular Culture Association, I think. And there was a book exhibit there. And the publisher had exhibited the Rolling Stones, 100 Best Songs, uh, Bob Dylan's 100 Best Songs, whatever, a whole series. There was no Grateful Dead song. So I said to the guy, I think I'd like to write the Grateful Dead 100 best songs. And uh, he sort of looked at me and smirked. And, <laughs> uh, you know, Deadheads being having a certain reputation, I guess. I mean, it was nine o'clock in the morning, and I promise I was not stoned. Yep. But, but he was looking at me like, you know, never mind. But he gave me the contact information for the acquisitions editor. And so I started thinking about this a little more seriously, and then I got in touch with Barry, who who I who is more knowledgeable than I about a lot of things. And I said, you know, this we can really do this. It can be fun. And we pitched it to the publisher. They bought it, and here we are. I, I assume you've written academic books before as well. I have, and uh, the Library of Congress once sent an email to the publisher saying, "Is this the same person that wrote the book about?" <laughs> It, the process must be very different because, you know, I, I've, I have a master's degree. I've written some academic stuff. And, you know, you, you have a certain rigor of things have to fit into a mold. Whereas here, it kind of feels like you're just free-forming. I guess 
tell me if I'm wrong, you kind of emailed back and forth or spent some days in a bar to narrow down the list of 100. You each picked a few that you wrote first, right? And then you sent them back and forth? Well, a lot of email, <laughs> a, a few phone calls, not very many, but a lot of email. And uh, we met in person, I think, only once during the process of writing this. Uh, but I know from an earlier episode of this podcast that you folks have still never met each other? We've never nope. met unless he was that guy who bumped into me at the Clash concert in 1982 <laughs> on the pier in New York City. Because we were both at the same concert, which we yeah. found out much later, but we've never but, met, no. That, that's, that's what happens these days yeah. when you have technology. I have to say the first thing we did is change from 100 best to 100 essential because trying to rank the best Grateful Dead songs for an audience of deadheads, even Segundo deadheads. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. It would be very awful <laughs> to say these are the best songs. Well, you know, you see you see lots of websites that do that. All of U2 songs ranked. And it's just basically clickbait. At the at best, if I were to do that if I were to do that with all the Grateful Dead songs, I would give them like A, A minus, B plus, B, whatever, ratings like that. But giving saying absolutely that Dark Star is better than the other one or Eyes of the World, it's kind of tough because there are certain playing in the bands that are better than certain dark stars and vice versa. Absolutely. And, and you know, the Grateful Dead is known for playing in so many different genres or styles of music that and it's hard to compare something that could be a chamber quartet with something that's a Dixieland ensemble or even, I mean, there's no real heavy metal in the Grateful Dead when you think about real heavy metal, but there are some places that are heavier than others. And you try to put all that into the same pot and figure out what's quote-unquote best is really a function of the beholder more than the objective material you're dealing with. And the recreational context. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we thought we could establish slightly at least objective <laughs> standards for what's essential. Well, I, th I think we could narrow down a short list of, of a bunch of songs that could be considered best. I don't want to do it now, but, you know, Dark Star Play and the other one, the, the real classic songs. But then when you get into the sort of second level, then it's really, it's really hard because I think that Lazy River Road is one of the best songs that Jerry Garcia ever sang, but it only came in so late in their career that no one really, well, some people know it, but only either touchheads or committed deadheads know the song. There aren't thousands of recordings like there are of me and my uncle. I have to say, I may be in passing slightly shifting the, the topic that it says 100 essential songs because the publisher had other books like that. There are actually more than 100 essential songs in the book. Uh, I'm not sure if that jumps out at you from the table of contents, but... Uh, no. Well, uh, China Cat Sunflower is an essential song, but... But it's China Rider, of course. China Rider, and yeah. there's two songs there. And if I suppose technically, like some deadheads do, if you wanted to count the jam in between... Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you, Sugar Magnolia, Sunshine Daydream, yeah. um, Scarlet Begonia, Fire on the Mountain, which which for deadheads are units. They go together. They're unitary. The, I know you writer, particularly in the in the acoustic version, a little bit different, was played on its own. And China Cat, a few times on its own, they're almost always played together. Absolutely. Scarlet Fire, there are sometimes, I think, when they were played separately, but not many. And, and we think of them as units. Scarlet was played several times by itself before Fire in the Mountain existed. Right. Once Fire in the Mountain came on board, 
it was pretty much a unit from then on. Yeah. And that's actually something that's really interesting about the Grateful Dead is the uh, someone said that the, the music of Mozart is the silence in between the notes. The real music of the Grateful Dead is those transitions from one song to another. It's like, I think, is it is it June 5th, 72, the China Rider that's on the Europe 72 album? There's a moment where they shift gears in between the two songs and they go from China into Rider and it's just really emotional. Or or on um, Skull and Rose is the moment where they shift from Not Fade Away into Going Down the Road Feeling Bad. That transition that they make is so well-crafted. Right, right, it is. And that was one of the problems in writing this book because we know that the magic is in the shift from one song to the next, just as you just as you just described it. Um, but you've got, if you're talking about songs, you have to treat them as units for the most part. Uh, even not fade away and going down the road uh, were not played always as a unit. I mean, they were kind of intensively for a few years in the seventies, but then after that, no. And so, most of the time, we put the benefit of the doubt on the separate song side of it, knowing that the book could be criticized by deadheads, by primo deadheads, saying, you know, this is really about the jams and blah, 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 blah. And we agree with that. And, but, uh, and, but our argument is the segundo deadheads are never going to become primo deadheads until they understand or think about or appreciate the individual song. I'm just thinking that when you go to a streaming service, if you've got a playlist that someone's made of Grateful Dead songs, and you've got the the China Cat Sunflower, but you don't have I Know You Rider after it, that's just like, that's like coitus interruptus in a way, right? You're you're almost there, and then they, they pull the rug out from under you. It's not fair. So you didn't rate all the songs, but other than the really well-known songs, Dark Star playing the band center, what are your favorite songs? What are your favorite lesser appreciated songs? You mentioned Althea. That's always been one of my favorite lesser appreciated songs. Right. Althea's a good uh, that, song, that's, actually. That's got these these curving melodies in it that are really nice. Right. And and it's got Shakespeare in it and and, yeah. and other stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Althea's a nice song. You know, I I figured I might be asked a question like this, and I've been thinking about this. <laughs> And uh, uh, so I'm going to say I'm going to give you two. OK, one one is playing in the band, which is sort of a classic, but not always everybody's favorite song. But for me, it's a favorite song because of the structure of their performance, not particularly the lyrics and not even particularly the phrasing of the music. Uh, although, you know, that 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 power riff at the end of the second or verse or whatever it is where they change the key is got to be a deadhead highlight for everybody, especially at the end of the jam when they come back to it. That's always a, been a big moment for me. But the fact that they sometimes come back to that power jam, other times put another song in there and then come back to the power jam, and then sometimes don't come back to the power jam until the next show or whatever, all of that structure is really like life. And so, you know, you might, for some reason in the 80s, leave the United States and go to Europe. And you don't know what that's going to be like, or what the end is going to be. And, and hopefully, there are some power rifts that bring you back to a good normalcy. But I mean, and playing in the band is a song that does that for me, way more than any other Grateful Dead song, even the ones with the jams in the middle, like, say, Fire on the Mountain. So that's one. And the other Probably an unlikely pick, 
but I've been thinking about this a lot this week, is uh, Row Jimmy. Row Jimmy is a folk song, kind of slow ballad, but it's got great lyrics about a struggling family that, you know, in life, you're, it's a slog. You've got to keep pushing, but you don't know if you're going to have success. And that's the nature of life for a lot of people, particularly the lower economic scale. And so it's got the lyrics. It's got the, if you want to put it that way, the political sense of, the, of what the economy is like and what it does to people. And, and it's got this great, especially the intro of um, syncopated staccato. I don't know the technical words for it because I'm not a musicologist, but it, for me and some of my friends, it's ticky, ticky, ticky. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. and the rhythm plays one note, the lead plays one note, the drum hits a beat, they're not playing it on the same number. And it's just, it's, it's kind of a little bit like reggae, but yeah. yeah you know, it's do, do, yeah. do, 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 do. I love that. I love that song and the way that that comes out. So there they are. I, I want to mention one of my favorites that's sure. not in the book. Okay. Oh, oh. And I'm sure you get this a lot. Sing Me Back Home. How could that not make it? It's even on the 7271 live recording that's added to Skull and Roses. Sing Me Back Home. There are some recordings of that that are just extraordinary. It's such an emotional song. Kirk, I'm telling you, it brings me to tears. And that may be because I'm older than you are, but nevertheless, it does. And here's a surprise. At the end of this book, not only did we sneak more than 100 into the list, we snuck in at the end 20 bonus picks, because that's what you do with a Grateful Dead tape. And one of the bonus picks... Is you fill the space, yeah. Sing Me Back Home is in there, but it's way at the back. Uh, and it links to the one from uh, the Vanita, Oregon show in, in, in 2772. Two or three, I forget. Yeah. One of the classic shows. Yeah. That was That's like one of the top five in all the surveys. And that's the one that was released with um, uh, video footage under the name Sunshine Daydream. I think it was not quite as hot as it is in Oregon today, where it's supposed to be 115, but it was like 105 that day. That close. <laughs> uh, um, they ran out of water, or then they brought a water truck, but it turned out that it had had like... Um, LSD? No, no, no. You know, pig urine or whatever. So they had to take the truck back and clean it out. And you watch the footage of this concert, and that's like the Grateful Dead right there. That's the experience, isn't it? Yeah. A friend of mine said, you know, you want to see the anthropology of the early 1970s at a music festival, watch Sunshine Daydream. That train ain't coming by here again. Yeah. And and that's it's all the more... Woodstock is totally different because it's excesses of everything, of the people, of the rain and the mud and the complications. But that's one concert where the fans, it's almost a religious experience for the fans. They go into the middle of a field someplace, nowhere, and the band sets up and they play and they have this experience that they share. Plus there's naked pole guy. I know, the naked pole dancer is like, he's so distracting. They should Photoshop him out or whatever they do on video. Um, but but yes, he was long. So footage of this long circulated in bootlegs, and he was long. He was one of the earliest Grateful Dead memes. This naked pole dancer. I don't know um, if I want to see it now because you make it sound like I got to tolerate this. This is maybe I'll just listen to it. I I wonder if anyone has ever found him. Has he ever come forward like the guy who yelled out Judas to Bob Dylan? They have, but I don't think I'll say what it is. 
But it, he, he's turned out to be very conventional. Oh, okay. He's not a senator or anything, is he? Or, uh... <laughs> no, I, I'll tell you, he's a real estate guy. Okay. Was, oh. yeah. But see, that, that's actually part of the anthropology, that people go through this period of, wh- what do they call the thing that the Amish do for one year? They can do anything they want? Yeah, right. The rite of passage. Yeah. And so they go through this period going to concerts, not just the Grateful Dead, just concerts in general. In your mid to late teens, when we were young, now they're going younger. And you get this out and then you go on with life and you take what you've learned into life in certain ways. And in other ways, it's just in the past. See, that's Kirk. You're exactly right on what I'm saying about playing in a band as a, as a performance structure exactly what it is when it's over you come back to the concert or when the show's over you go back to life but for a while there you've been off on a well what i called on something i wrote about that uh, an episodic adventure and in that episodic adventure you're in a different place and you may be a different person with any luck you'll come back to normalcy if if that's acceptable uh, and if that's what you want if that's that's what i mean if that's if, if that's what you want uh, but you've gone off on a little bit of an adventure. And, and uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, Bob Trudeau, I'm going to remind listeners, the book is called The Grateful Dead's 100 Essential Songs, The Music Never Stops by Barry Barnes and Bob Trudeau. Thank you so much for joining us, Bob. Thank you Great. for having me. been a pleasure. We don't do the ads. We don't have sponsors. We don't have to read things off of, of a card. Kind of wish I had something to read off a card right now, because making these things up to try to encourage you to donate to our our Patreon page is, is, is somewhat difficult. But it sure beats having to listen to an advertisement, don't you think? So let me keep it brief. We could certainly use your help, and if you can spare a couple of bucks every month, head over to patreon.com slash the next track and sign up and help us out. Kirk, you have an next track. My next track pick is rarely related to the topic we discuss, sometimes, but not often. And today's pick is pretty much a timely thing. John Hassel, trumpet player and composer, just died a couple of days ago. And that reminded me that I should go back and listen to some of his music. The first album of his I heard, which is probably the first album most people heard, is Fourth World Possible Musics, which was a collaboration between him and Brian Eno. This came out in 1980, and I remember I found this quite fascinating, the, the style of music. Looking up on Wikipedia, he studied Kiranic singing, which is an Indian type of singing with an Indian master named Pandit Pranat. He went to India with a number of interesting people, Lamont Young, Terry Riley, among others who was with him. And in 1980, he released this Eno album. And it's a combination of sort of drone music. But as he kind of describes playing ragas on the trumpet, this album's out of print. You can get used copies of it. It's not on the streaming services. I, I had an old copy that I ripped into like low quality AAC files back in the day. It's fascinating. You might want to look up some of his more recent music. He's got a couple of records on ECM in the past few years. So some of his jazz is that kind of style. One that came out in an expanded edition is City, colon, Works of Fiction. It was originally on Opal Records, and it was re-released in 2014 on All Saints. Any John Hassel is interesting. He has a unique sound. He called his music fourth world music, which he defined as a unified, primitive, futuristic sound combining features of world ethnic styles with advanced electronic techniques. And if you know enough about Brian Eno, that's like the perfect pairing of this idea and Brian Eno. So fourth world possible musics, John Hassel and Brian Eno. What about you, Doug? 
I'm going to keep this kind of brief because this was just an amazing thing. Um, I'm picking a movie this time around. I usually don't do that, but this was so overwhelming. The Summer of Soul is uh, a, a terrific documentary that's been put together by Questlove, who you may know is one of the founders of The Roots and who is the music director on The Tonight Show currently. During the summer of 1969, there were a series of concerts held at a park in Harlem called the Harlem Cultural Festival. It happened the same year as Woodstock. And I've never heard of this. Uh, and there are some terrific performers. And what's happened is Questlove has taken this, this film, which was made at the time, but hasn't been seen since, and put it together into a, a, a terrific documentary. Not only is it the terrific music that was performed at, at these shows, but, I mean, these are terrific people. Stevie Wonder is in it, B.B. King, the, the Staple Singers, Fifth Dimension, uh, Sly and the Family Stone. I've never heard of this. I've never heard of any recordings made of it and, and made available. And the, the, the striking thing is, is that you see this, and then you think about Woodstock, that festival of, of middle-class white people up in upstate New York, and then you see this, this urban uh, event going on in Harlem. And the same summer, it's quite a juxtaposition, and the, the music is terrific. I, I, I can't get enough of that. I had chills all through it. It's just absolutely terrific. So if you get a chance to see it, it's on Hulu in this country. It's also available in theaters. It's called Summer of Soul, and it's my next track. This was episode number 213 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making a regular donation via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, and your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.